The What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. During the evening of June 2nd, 1863, the Union Army carried out a raid in South Carolina. Union gunboats traveled up the Cumbahee River, stopping periodically to pick up enslaved persons who were waiting to escape. Now, along the way, they also damaged the plantations of local secessionists. And in total, the Cumbahee River raid resulted in several plantations being destroyed and over 700 enslaved people being rescued. Who led this successful Union raid? Well, it was none other than the Moses of her people, Harriet Tubman. In doing so, she became the first woman to lead a military operation in the United States. She gathered intelligence on the location of the Confederate torpedoes by trading information for the promise of freedom with enslaved people. And she was able to lead the Union ships through the river with minimal damage. Only one enslaved person was killed during the raid. While we offer thanksgiving for the over 700 people that were saved, we also take time to mourn the unknown sister who was lost that night, only knowing the promise of freedom, but never its taste. The Cumbahee River Raid was an inspirational feat which became a symbol for what can happen when black women are liberated and leading the charge for collective freedom. Thanks for listening to the What Would It Take podcast. In this episode, we explore the question, what would it take for our sisters to be free? Listen in. I want to back us up for a second, though, because I'm still thinking about the black woman who was killed by Confederate soldiers while trying to gain her freedom. She's nameless, photoless, one person in a long line of black women who've been erased both literally and figuratively from society. And this nameless, photoless person is sticking with me because I recently watched a TED Talk from Kimberly Crenshaw. And she started by asking her audience to stand up as she read some names out loud. Whenever an audience member didn't recognize a name that was read, they were invited to sit down. She went through the first list of names and over half the audience was still standing. She then repeated the exercise with a different set of names, this time women. And by the end of that second list, only a handful of folks in the audience were left standing. The first group of names were black men who were killed by police. Names you probably recognize like Ahmaud Arbery or Michael Brown. The second group were black women killed by police. Dr. Crenshaw did this juxtaposition to show that the only difference in awareness was the gender of the people who were named, meaning that black women are killed under the same circumstances as black men, yet their deaths and names rarely make widespread media attention. This led to the rise of the hashtag Say Her Name movement, which gained national attention following the death of Breonna Taylor in February of 2020. But why aren't black women getting coverage of their oppression? Well, in short, they have the intersecting levels of oppression that racism and sexism afford them. Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality, which is a metaphor she created to discuss the overlapping systems of oppression that impact black women. And she isn't the only one to address this issue. In the 1970s, the Combahee River Collective released a now well-known document outlining their beliefs and addressed the same type of intersecting oppression. 
1974, over 110 years after that famous raid, a group of women formed the Combahee River Collective. In the words of one of the founding members, Barbara Smith, the group believed that, quote, by naming the group after the Combahee River Raid, they were both honoring Harriet Tubman and indicating that liberation required political action. The collective represented a break from both mainstream feminism, which was dominated by middle-class white femininity, and the patriarchy of the black nationalist movement. Members of the collective worked on issues of sterilization, rape, access to health care, abortion rights, and protections for battered women, among other issues. They articulated their vision for a world that was rooted in the unique experience of queer, black women who have to deal with the great isms of society, namely capitalism and its related forms of oppression, sexism, racism, and heterosexism. The collective's vision and members have inspired generations of feminist, womanist, and liberation-based leaders. It's some of the earliest articulations of what we would call intersectional theory today. In their official statement of belief, they have this to say, quote, The most general statement of our politics at the present time would be that we are actively committed to struggling against racial, sexual, heterosexual, and class oppression, and see as our particular task the development of integrated analysis and practice based upon the fact that the major systems of oppression are interlocking. Above all else, our politics initially sprang from the shared belief that black women are inherently valuable and that our liberation is a necessity, not as an adjunct to somebody else's, but because of our need as human persons for autonomy. We realize that the liberation of all oppressed people necessitates the destruction of the political economic systems of capitalism and imperialism, as well as patriarchy. End quote. Though these words were penned in the 1970s, they ring just as true today. While progress has been made, black women are still fighting for protection, recognition, and political power. The following data come from the Status of Black Women report that was created in 2017 by the Institute for Women's Policy Research in collaboration with the National Domestic Workers Alliance. And here are some takeaways about the status of black women. Black women of all ages were twice as likely to be imprisoned as white women in 2014. Black women experienced poverty at higher rates than black men and women from all other racial and ethnic groups except Native American women. As of the publication of that 2017 report, black women had the highest breast cancer mortality rates among all large ethnic groups between 1999 and 2013 and the second highest lung cancer mortality rates. In 2014, black women composed 6.4% of the United States population, but as of August of 2016 held only 3.4% of seats in the United States Congress and no seats in the U.S. Senate. Now, we know that recently changed with the election of uh, Kamala Harris, but still, that's only one senator. According to the Black Women in American Politics report, black women are now 7.8% of the population as of 2020, but they represent less than 5% of office holders elected to statewide executive offices, Congress, and state legislatures. Just 17 black women have ever held statewide elective executive offices, and no black woman has ever been elected governor, despite the first ever major party nomination of a black woman for governor in 2018. According to the U.S. Census, on average, black women were paid 63% of what non-Hispanic white men were paid in 2019, 
That means it takes the typical black woman 19 months to be paid what the average white man takes home in 12 months. That's even worse than the national earnings ratio for all women, which is 83%, as reported in AAUW's The Simple Truth About the Gender Pay Gap. And these data points are just a snapshot of different measurements that showcase how black women are doing in society. There are many other data points you can look at that affirm the simple and horrific truth that black women are having to fight tooth and nail for their collective liberation. As I look at all these data points and think about the longevity with which these interlocking systems of oppression have been harming black women, I can't help but wonder why our faith hasn't done more to encourage us to support black women in their fight for liberation. Because again, when black women are free, everyone is free. And I wonder what would happen if we regularly imagined God in the image of a black woman. Do this, do this experiment with me. Close your eyes and just imagine this. What if every form of art you consumed that represented God, the Father, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit, what if it was black? What if every time you saw an image of the crucifixion, you saw a black woman? What if every time you saw a, a photo of God benevolently smiling down on you, you saw a black woman? What if every representation of the Trinity was of black women? What would be different? What would shift in our psyches? In the film adaptation of The Shack, the character of God is played by Octavia Spencer. And I love that because it reminds us that any one of us can be in the image of God. It subverts the power structures and paradigms that we often cling to tightly. If black femininity comes to represent the divinity of God, then we have to move more seriously and we have to deal with the policies and practices which attack that image. Secondly, in the gospel narratives, Jesus calls his followers to subvert the dominant systems and paradigms of society. Well, in first century Palestine, that meant touching those suffering from leprosy and fellowshipping with sex workers. It meant critiquing the wealthy while feeding the hungry and proclaiming the poor would inherit God's kingdom. The good news of the gospel is that the system of the world, the system of the empire, the system of imperialism is being turned on its head. Have we forgotten this part of the good news? If not, then what might it mean to turn our current system on its head? Well, it would mean highlighting the voices of black women and femmes. It would mean looking at the ways sexism, heterosexism, and racism are impacting the lived experiences of black women. It would mean taking ownership of our own spheres of influence and taking risks so that the power can be redistributed. The point here is that the teeth of the gospel message are designed to tear into the flesh of this diseased socio-political system that is keeping black women and queer black women in particular on the bottom. Following Jesus means living out this subversion until the system itself is destroyed and a new kingdom, a new sphere, a new way of being rooted in liberation is enacted. So when you think about the gospel message, I'm going to challenge you to think about black women to think about black femmes, to think about queer black women, and to ask yourself if the gospel you're honoring, if the gospel you're proclaiming and preaching and practicing is true to its original message of subversion, if it's pushing back against the dominant systems of oppression in our society. When you're worshiping together or alone, 
think about black femmes. When you're sharing communion and honoring the body, flesh, and blood of Christ, think about queer black women. When you are singing the songs that you sing, when you're passing the peace, think about black women, black bodies. Remember the photoless, nameless woman who was lost during the Cumbahee River Raid and let her represent the countless others who've been lost, forgotten, taken for granted, and swallowed up by this system of greed and oppression, a system that we can change, a system that our own gospel demands that we subvert and destroy. Think about that. So how can we ensure that black women are liberated and protected? Well, one of the easiest things we can do, or maybe I shouldn't say easiest, one of the first things that we can do is to bring an intersectional lens to our own work and to our spheres of influence. So that means the congregation you're a part of. That means the nonprofit um, whose board that you sit on. That means the organization that you work for. Where can we apply an intersectional lens? How can the principles of intersectionality impact the mission and vision of your organization? How might it transform your practices, policies, and procedures? I don't know the answers to this, but these are questions I'm inviting you to hold. We also need more black women in leadership positions. I'm talking corporate positions, nonprofits, elected offices, hospitals, school boards, etc. The problem isn't a lack of qualified candidates. The problem is that there are barriers to opportunity and a lack of will to change the systems that serve many of us. So every chance you get, support black women. Give to organizations that they're leading. Buy products from black women. Advocate for hiring and promotion practices which are equitable and create programs which will invest in the advancement of black women. Support HR policies that will address pay inequity and enforce consequences for discriminatory practices. Support art and media which offers nuanced and in-depth portrayals of black women, femmes, and gender non-conforming people. There are a myriad of other organizations that we can support in this work. And in case you're curious, I've listed a few below that I'll also include in the show notes. But here are some organizations that are ready to have your support right now. Number one is Black Mamas Matter Alliance. The Black Mamas Matter Alliance advocates for research and policy changes in order to advance black maternal health care. Their mission statement reads, We envision a world where black mamas have the rights, respect, and resources to thrive before, during, and after pregnancy. Number two, the Loveland Foundation. Founded in 2018 by activist and educator Rachel Cargill, the Loveland Foundation provides financial support to black women and girls seeking therapy and mental health support. Number three, the National Black Women's Justice Institute. The National Black Women's Justice Institute is dedicated to eliminating racial and gender barriers for black women, girls, and their families. The organization addresses issues like criminalization, economic marginalization, domestic violence, and much more. Number four, the Black Women's Agenda. Since 1977, this DC-based nonprofit has been educating the public about economic, social, and civil liberties issues that affect black women. They also recommend data-based policy changes in the interest of black women's rights. Number five, the African American Policy Forum. Founded in 1996, the African American Policy Forum is an innovative think tank that connects academics, activists, and policymakers to promote efforts to dismantle structural inequity. 
They utilize new ideas and innovative perspectives to transform public discourse and policy. Again, these are just a few examples of organizations that you can support today. There are many others you can find with just a quick Google search. And if you pay close enough attention, you can probably find a lot of local organizations and small business owners that are black women that would love your support. And if you want some additional ideas, go to my Instagram page because I usually highlight people and organizations that I believe in on that page. And so you can find other black women there that are doing amazing work in Indianapolis, in Indiana, and across the country. So if you want some ideas or just want to know who I support and who's in my network, go to my Instagram page and you'll find people highlighted there. In conclusion, I just want to say that visibility matters. So we're going to end this episode in the same way that Kimberly Crenshaw ended her TED Talk, by saying the names of some of the women whose stories have been buried, whose lives made invisible, and whom we've been made to believe are inconsequential. We say their names and tell their stories because they do indeed matter. Makia Bryant, a 16-year-old in Columbus, Ohio, who was shot while holding a knife and charging at another person. What you may not know is that Makia is the one who called the police for support and is believed to have been defending herself against another person. Despite that fact, she was gunned down. Tatiana Jefferson, a 28-year-old who was shot after a neighbor called the police to do a wellness check. The officer opened fire within four seconds of stepping into her home. Paula Turner, a 45-year-old grandmother of three who was shot by a police officer who was attempting to arrest her for supposedly having multiple open warrants. Corinne Gaines, a 23-year-old, was shot by officers after a standoff which was precipitated by officers attempting to serve warrants for Corinne and her boyfriend. Her five-year-old son was also shot in the face. Yvette Smith, a 44-year-old woman who was killed by an officer after she called 911, hoping to quell a dispute between two men. When Smith opened her door, the responding officer yelled, Police! and shot her three seconds later. Miriam Carey, A 34-year-old mother was shot several times, including in the back of the head, while seated in her car after making a legal U-turn in order to avoid a security checkpoint. Her one-year-old was in the car at the time. Shelly Frey, a 27-year-old, was shot by an off-duty officer while she was in the passenger seat of her friend's car after supposedly shoplifting from a convenience store. There are also other names like Darnesia Harris, Melissa Williams, Chantel Davis, Rakia Boyd, Ayanna Stanley Jones, who was only seven years old when she was killed, Tarika Wilson, Katherine Johnston, Kendra James, Taisha Miller, and many, many others. Say their names, honor their memories, and honor the black women in your life today. When they are free, we will all be free. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the What Would It Take podcast. If you appreciate this podcast and the content I'm putting out, take a moment and leave me a five-star rating. That is the fastest way for new listeners to find this content and information and the easiest way for you to support my work. So take a moment, leave me that five-star rating. I appreciate it. To find out more about me and what I do, you're welcome to follow me on Facebook at Benjamin J. Tapper 
You can also follow me on Instagram at Thoughtful Revolutionary. That's Thoughtful underscore Revolutionary. And you can check out my blog on Substack called The Mix. This is a series of writings about belonging and the experience of being multiracial in the United States. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for your support. If you liked this episode format, feel free to give me some feedback. You can do that again on my social media channels or send me an email at benjaminjtapper at gmail.com. That's benjaminjtapper at gmail.com. I love your feedback, ideas for new episodes, or if you've got a creative project you want to collaborate on, hit me up and we can see what we can get going. All right, y'all. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope that you are uh, learning and sharing more content about the resilience and beauty of Black folks during Black History Month. And I look forward to connecting with you soon. Take care.